The net zero carbon future in Australia is very much possible, achievable and economically beneficial. Oh, hey there. I'm Mark. Just your typical Melbourne podcaster, you can tell from the funny accent. One day, I just happened to wander into the offices of ERA, the Australian Institute of Refrigeration, Air Conditioning and Heating, and well, now I'm helping them tell their story. And I've come to realize that these industries are shaping the world around all of us. If you're anything like me, or how I used to be, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about buildings. You might give them a glance occasionally as you walk by when it's a big construction site, or you, like me, might live in an apartment building. But I don't think we really realize that there are whole industries living and operating inside these buildings. They're the heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and refrigeration industries, or HVAC in R for short. And these are the hidden industries that are responsible for occupant safety, comfort, overall efficiency, and yes, even global warming emissions. Now, admittedly, HVAC and R isn't an industry we generally need to stop and consider. You know, as the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. And if everything's working, we usually can take it for granted. But this is where things start to get interesting. It's working, but there's always room for improvement. This is particularly important now, when we consider things like building sustainable cities and working towards net zero. If you're wondering what net zero is, then you've come to the right place. It's something that's going to have a massive impact on how cities develop in the next few years. And if you already know what net zero is, then you'll definitely want to pay attention because you know how important it is and the enormous changes it's bringing to the HVAC in our industry. So welcome to the first episode of Era on Air, where we're talking net zero and just what that means. In this show, you'll hear from three expert guests talking us through first the meaning of net zero, the present of what net zero actually looks like, and then we'll learn a bit more about what it'll take to actually get to a net zero future. So in order, these guests are... I'm Paul Cooper. I'm the director of the Sustainable Buildings Research Centre at the University of Wollongong. Claire Parry. I am a director of Grun Consulting. Tony Arnell. I'm the global director of sustainability at Norman Disney & Young. Do a search on YouTube for net zero carbon buildings, and you'd think you'd made a mistake. Net zero energy buildings? Is that what you meant? There's loads of media on net zero energy solar panels, turning homes and commercial buildings into clean power plants. But that's not what we mean when we talk about net zero. At least, that's not all we mean. Look closer though and you'll see a video from the World Green Building Council, a video about a new net zero pledge. It challenges the industry to net zero carbon buildings by 2030 for WGBC members and all buildings by 2050, whether newly built or retrofit. But what does a zero carbon building really mean? And to explain these definitions for us, there'd be nobody better than, say, the director of a sustainable buildings research center from, I don't know, the University of Wollongong? I'm Paul Cooper. I'm the director of the Sustainable Buildings Research Center at the University of Wollongong. Net zero building can mean different things. At one end of the spectrum, you've got the less ambitious target of having a building that is net zero energy or net zero carbon over the course of a year. So that means if you have a house that is grid connected with photovoltaic panels on the roof, if you export more renewable energy from your PV panels to the grid over the course of a year than you import energy from the grid, well then you're net positive, you're more than net zero. 
But on the other end of the spectrum, if we really want to have zero carbon buildings, we not only need to take into account the operational carbon emissions or energy use, we also need to take into account the embodied carbon and the embodied energy, which arises from the fact that you need to manufacture the materials for your building, you need to transport those materials to site and so on. Is that anywhere near? I think it's on the horizon. And again, it depends a little bit on definitions. So if one imagines the building that you have restores in some way or another the negative impacts that the construction of the building and the operating of the building uh, has had on the environment globally, then you can get to a zero carbon building in effect. In our Sustainable Buildings Research Centre at the University of Wollongong, we designed that to attempt to win accreditation under the Living Building Challenge program. And the goal in the longer term is to develop buildings that are actually restorative. So they're not just net zero, they're actually restoring some of the impacts that the construction and operation of the building have had globally. Measuring the amount of embodied carbon is actually quite difficult. It it seems on the face of it to be reasonably simple. So, for example, we're making a a building out of bricks, well, you could measure the amount of energy that's consumed in the firing of those bricks in the furnace at the brickworks. But there's a great deal of variability in how much carbon or energy is used in production of building materials or any other materials according to where it's done uh, within a country or internationally, what sort of materials are used, what are the transport implications and so on. So life cycle analysis of building materials is still, I would say, in its early stages because there are lots of materials that are used in buildings that haven't got a a very definitive number put to them and, as you say, the providence of of the materials is often not always clear. But having said that, we are moving quite quickly in the right direction. User-friendly tools that can be used by architects and building designers and stakeholders to actually look at the embodied energy and carbon and other impacts of a building at the design stage. So you really can look at minimising the impact through good design. One of the barriers is undoubtedly cost. It, It does cost money. Quantification of the impacts through life cycle analysis, there still needs to be work done there. So it's important to know that net zero, which is a very commonly used term in the industry, can actually mean two very different things. We can be talking about net zero energy, which a lot of buildings are going for now, or we can talk about net zero carbon, which means we're actually factoring in all the emissions used in the construction of the building. That's materials, transport, and actual construction activity. Now we're going to hear from our second guest, who's going to tell us a bit more about the current demand for net zero buildings and one of the most popular rating tools out there. My name is Claire Parry. I am a director of Grun Consulting, specialist high-performance buildings consultancy. We specialise mostly in Passive House. Passive House is a building standard that originated, or was formulated at least, um, in Germany, but it was based on research out of China and delivering buildings that perform passively in any climate. 
And there are buildings built to the passive house standard that achieve net zero energy at the moment? Yeah, definitely. So a passive house building in just delivering the passive house classic standard achieves between 70 and 90% energy efficiency over standard construction. But with renewables applied, you can get to net zero fairly easily. And there's a passive house plus and premium standard, which is a net positive building. Do any of them get to the stage of net zero carbon? It's not explicit, but yeah, absolutely, they, they can. So can you tell us what the importance is of having a robust net zero standard? Well, it's like anything. If it's not robust, then you might suffer from, I guess, an element of greenwash. So for me, any robust net zero definition must include efficiency first. The World Green Building Council's definition is great. It says that a net zero carbon building is a building that is highly energy efficient and fully powered from on-site or off-site renewable energy sources. So that is a standard that we can build to now? Absolutely, yeah. So if it's doable, Claire, and it's being done right now, what are some of the things you've seen that are slowing down the adoption of net zero buildings? I would say the issues are mostly around education and having established pathways to deliver. And there, there is a bit of greenwash that's happened in the market. We had this belief that green equaled bling. So a lot of the buildings that we look at, they were outwardly green and that didn't appeal to everybody. There's also been a big focus on capital costs. So upfront construction costs has played a big part and it always does in any discussions we have. So Although we've had a really solid knowledge base for for a long time, there's been a limited appetite to use it. So we're now seeing a a new focus on whole-of-life impacts of building design. So the education gap being a bit of a hurdle to get across, is there any organisations that you know of out there, Claire, that are getting the right information to builders and architects and designers at the right time? There's been a lot of work done in the past by organisations such as Beyond Zero Emissions or BZE. More recently, we've seen ASBEC and Climate Works undertake a fairly large project showing that a net zero carbon future in Australia is very much possible, achievable and economically beneficial. We've also got the Green Building Council working internationally with their network to show us what net zero carbon looks like. So Claire has told us that the present for net zero energy buildings is actually looking pretty good. The passive house standard is starting to become quite popular, and a lot of developers are becoming quite pragmatic about pursuing net zero energy. So the time has now come to talk about the future, and how we're going to get from the dozens or hundreds of projects we have now to the hundreds of thousands of projects we'll need to have a chance to hit the World Green Building Council's pledge of all buildings in the world being net zero carbon by 2050. Here to tell us all about that is... Tony Arnell, I'm the Global Director of Sustainability at Norman Disney & Young. I'm also Industry Professor at Deakin University and one of the boards I'm on is as President of the Energy Efficiency Council. So what will it take to meet the WGBC pledge of 2030 for all buildings owned or controlled by their members and 2050 for the global building stock? To know how we're tracking towards that goal, it'd be nice to start with how many of those buildings we have today. What's that number, Tony Arnell? We're not aware of any comprehensive database for net zero buildings, Mark, and that's part of the problem. There are examples overseas that we're aware of. US New Buildings Institute has a database. We are in the process of developing databases here in Australia, and the Living Futures Institute is an example of that. But we do need to very quickly move to a national database. 
So what kind of buildings are we talking about that are currently at net zero energy? Typically, there are commercial buildings, education buildings, and also industrial buildings as well that we're aware of. So I know at Norman Disney and Young, where we're talking today, you guys are working on a net zero project in Nary Warren. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, we're involved in a project at Narrawarren, which is an educational facility, and that's going to be one of the very first net zero energy training facilities uh, here in Australia. And one of the features of this particular project, Mark, is that it's been funded to the tune of half a million dollars by the Australian Renewable Energy Authority, so it can be used as a demonstration project. So we've talked a bit leading up to now about the spectrum of net zero, how we've got net zero energy on one hand, but then net zero carbon on the other. So with this project in Nary Warren fitting under net zero... This is specifically designed as net zero energy. So when we talk about net zero carbon, that takes into account the embodied energy used in the actual building of the project, and this project is not as advanced as that. So from where you sit, Tony, what does the future look like for net zero buildings? Well, look, I'm, I'm optimistic about the built environment. I think that there is enough political momentum and industry momentum as well that will see us continue to deliver in relation to energy efficient outcomes in relation to buildings. But it's going to require a significant amount of policy positioning in relation to where governments are coming from. It's going to require industry to be doing the right thing and pushing building design as far as they can. And it's also going to require, in my view, some incentivization. Tony, going forward, what role do you see the National Building Code having? The National Building Code Mark has a crucial role to play to the extent that we need to improve stringency standards for energy efficiency in buildings significantly over the next 10 to 20 years. If buildings are going to actually generally achieve net zero energy outcomes, then eliminating worst practice in the marketplace can only be achieved by improving our stringency standards in the code. When we have market failure, and that is what we have at the moment uh, in many respects, because the uh, rate of change is not rapid enough. So of the buildings we've currently seen in the Australian market that are net zero energy, they're all by and large showcases or example projects. And there's simply not enough of them. I mean, the reality is that these are, as you say, very much showcases or demonstration projects. If we're going to achieve true market transformation, then we have to be looking at thousands and thousands of buildings. We have to be looking at thousands and thousands of houses at the same time. And we have to have a combination of improvements in the code, consumer awareness, and incentivization in the marketplace. So what we have in Australia, in the words of one of our leading experts in the field, it's a dysfunctional market. We've got this goal set by the World Green Building Council for net zero carbon buildings, and most people chasing net zero status are only chasing the easier form of net zero energy. It's a big hairy topic, folks, and I know I probably haven't wrapped it up in a super neat bow, but I do hope at least you know now the differences between net zero energy and net zero carbon, and you're familiar with what those two terms mean and why they are different. So when you're next looking to rent or buy a property, 
and the developer is all too happy to say, it's a net zero building. You're armed with the facts to say, yes, but is it net zero energy or net zero carbon? Make no mistake, folks, net zero carbon is the future. It's just a matter of how soon we can get there, and the sooner the better. If this sparked an interest in you and you'd like to learn more, well, you're in luck. This is an audio adaptation of the cover story from Ecolibrium, ERA's industry journal that comes out monthly. There's a link to the article in the show notes where they get into a lot more depth on this topic, but I hope this served as a good overview for you, and you now look at the built world around us a little differently. This is our very first episode of ERA on Air, and we'd love to hear what you think of it. The show will be monthly, and it'll be out on the second Wednesday of every month. If you could give us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app, we'd greatly appreciate that. But most important of all, if you enjoy the show, just tell a friend. Next month, we'll be bringing you a story all about big data and how it affects the built world. Thank you for listening to ERA on Air.